we'll be in Genesis chapter 28. We can open our Bibles up there. Last time we went through a couple of chapters and we saw Jacob doing what he does and Rebecca, his mother, actually aiding him in tricking his father and stealing, in effect, his own birthright, but the birthright that his father wanted to give to Esau. He used a little bit of deception there, but in the end, it was God's will that was accomplished. God prophesied that Jacob would rule Esau, the younger would rule the older, and that's exactly what we're going to see unfold throughout the rest of history from this point forward. And I want you to remember, I want to put this in context for us, we're seeing in these chapters how God brings about the nation of Israel. That's really what is being said in front of us right here. So don't lose, lose sight of that fact. We're seeing the early days of the nation that God would immensely bless. Okay? So as we come into chapter 28, and we're going to get most of the way through 29 as well, we see that there's a bit of a shift in Isaac, Jacob and Esau's father. So in chapter 27, that was not a good look for Isaac, right? He was trying to go against what God had told his wife, and he was trying to bless Esau with that blessing. That's not what God wanted of him. He was, he was butting heads with God, really, is, is what he was doing. Not a good look for him. And it was sad to see him in such a place. He seemed to push against God's plan for his family. But even though Isaac experiences a lapse in faith, and that's effectively what it was, God's will is ultimately accomplished. And we saw that last week. Jacob obtains the blessing that Isaac intended for Esau. Now, all the repercussions for that deception are being handed out. Everyone's experiencing the natural consequences for what Rebekah and Jacob just did. Esau is fuming mad against Jacob, his brother, and he purposes in his mind to kill him. That's how mad he is. He's also mad at his mother for inciting the whole incident. And Isaac, the father, was greatly distressed so that he trembled greatly when he realized what had happened when he realized that he mixed those blessings up. And so Jacob is sent away by his mother, so he's not killed by his brother. And Rebecca will never get to see her beloved son, Jacob, again. She says, go away for a few days until Esau calms down. You can come back and rejoin us. That's not what happens. Jacob is going to be gone in Haran for about 20 years. And we have no record of Rebecca seeing her son again. What a sad series of events. And it was all avoidable. Had Jacob and Rebecca just committed this matter of the blessing to the Lord in prayer. In private. Instead of taking it upon themselves to go address the matter and try to fix it from their point of view. Just commit it to the Lord. 
And at the very end of chapter 27, Rebekah sends Jacob to her father's house, Bethuel. And that's back in Haran. And she's afraid that Esau is going to kill him. And she thinks that this is a safe place that Jacob can go, seek refuge from his brother, and maybe find a wife for himself there while he's at it. And this is another area where Isaac kind of fails. His sons were older by this point. You know, they were actually in their 70s. And Jacob still didn't have a wife. We saw Esau took it upon himself to take wives, and they displeased his parents. Well, Jacob had not been set up well. Isaac had not prepared a bride for Jacob. We see Esau marrying those two Canaanite women, and in a few verses we'll see him marrying a daughter of Ishmael, kind of in a poor attempt to please his dad. It seems that Jacob knew better, though, than to marry a Canaanite woman. He at least stayed unmarried, and he probably learned by being around Esau's wives that they had different standards, different morals, different beliefs than his family did. And so he did well to remain unmarried. But it's about time he finds a wife. You know, I was home this weekend, and my mom loves the show Farmer Wants a Wife. So that was playing on the TV when I was walking through the house. It just popped into my mind. Bear with me. Jacob does well to remain unmarried. But he's in his 70s now, and it's time that he finds someone he can spend the rest of his life with. So in their time, we can take 70 and divide it about by two, and that's roughly equivalent to how old it would be in our years, quote-unquote, because they lived longer lives. So even though he's not like old and decrepit, he is also a little bit past the age that normally people would be getting married. Now, at the beginning of chapter 28, Jacob has not yet left for Haran. He's back at his house, and Isaac calls to Jacob. And verse 1 says, Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him, and charged him, and said to him, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father. And take yourself a wife from there of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. And this is where it seems that Isaac snaps out of this rebellious phase. He comes back to his senses, and we now see this loving father who does care for his younger son and who does care for the promises of God. Because now he's initiating this blessing to Jacob, knowing who Jacob is and being willing to give this blessing to him. So Isaac then delivers this blessing to Jacob, and it really seems to be from his heart. It seems that he really means it this time. He says, May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may be an assembly of peoples and give you the blessing of Abraham to you and your descendants with you, 
that you may inherit the land in which you are a stranger, which God gave to Abraham. He starts off with, may God Almighty bless you. The name of God used here, El Shaddai, God Almighty, was revealed to Abraham in Genesis 17, verse 1, when God gave him the sign of circumcision. By revealing himself as El Shaddai, God Almighty, God showed Abraham an important characteristic of himself, an important attribute. He was all-powerful, omnipotent. And so far as we know from Scripture, God did not personally reveal himself to Isaac as El Shaddai, but Isaac took what he knew of God from his father. So Abraham no doubt passed on that knowledge of God to his son, Isaac, and now Isaac passes this knowledge down to his son, Jacob. May God Almighty bless you, the all-powerful, almighty God. That you may inherit the land in which you are a stranger, which God gave to Abraham. Now this is the other part of that promise, which involves the land that God promised to Abraham. Hebrews eleven seventeen says that it was by faith that Abraham dwelt in the land of promise, that's Canaan, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. With Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. God had committed that land of Canaan to Abraham as an inheritance. And now that inheritance was essentially passed on to Isaac and now to Jacob. To you and your descendants with you that you may inherit the land in which you are a stranger, which God gave to Abraham. Verse 5, so Isaac sent Jacob away and he went to Padan Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel the Syrian, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau. Padan Aram, or Padan Aram, is the region where Haran was. So we say Haran, we say Padan Aram, Padan Aram, however you want to pronounce it. It's all talking about the same general area. And I won't go too much into it again, because I did a couple weeks ago. But I believe that Ur of the Chaldeans was in that northern place, really close to Haran. So that would have also been in this region encompassed by Padan Aram. Um, I don't think that it was the eastern location of Ur, which was a more well-known city. All right. So Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram, back to the home of Rebekah, his mother. And verse 6, Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Paran Aram to take himself a wife from there. And that as he blessed him, he gave him a charge, saying, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. And that Jacob obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Padan Aram. So Esau hears of his father blessing Jacob for a second time. The first time, that blessing was, in his mind, supposed to be his. And he was fuming. 
Now, Isaac knows what he's doing, and I'm sure that that makes Esau even that much more angry. He certainly knew that his parents didn't approve of his choice to marry those Canaanite women. And it was like rubbing salt in the wound when he saw Jacob obeying and honoring his father's wishes not to marry one of those women. He just can't get anything right. And I'm sure that's what's going on in his mind. Esau's thinking, man, I just try so hard. I feed my dad good venison, and this is what he does for me. He blesses my brother. So he does what is essentially a half-hearted attempt at righting his wrongs. So he marries another woman, and this time it's not a Canaanite, which is in the right direction, but he doesn't quite go far enough. It says, also Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan did not please his father Isaac. So Esau went to Ishmael and took Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebajoth, to be his wife in addition to the wives that he had. So this is Esau's sad attempt at righting his wrongs. It's like shutting the barn door after the horse has already run out of it. You know, it's like taking a shower before you go to clean the stalls out. It's too little too late. And it it's a half-hearted attempt. He goes to Ishmael, you know, Abraham's son, and takes a wife from one of his daughters. And it's like fine. You don't like my Canaanite wives? Well, here. Here's a different kind of wife. Here's from Ishmael. I just tend to think that he's not thinking very rationally at this point. Probably blinded by anger or resentment towards his father. Something very emotional is going on in him. And it's amazing the influence a father has on his child. It's amazing. And only God knows, we really have no idea, what kind of a detriment absentee fathers have had on our country and on society in general. Look at the extent to which Esau goes to please his father. That's what this whole third wife situation is about. It's about pleasing his dad. Now we're going to go back to Jacob. And he's on his way to Haran now. Now Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran, where his mom was from. So he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head, and he lay down in that place to sleep. I want you to imagine how tired this guy was. He's running from his brother who's trying to kill him. His brother is a hunter. He's hairy, and he knows the land. He smells like a field, and he's after him. So he's being tailed by this hairy brother, and he's good with a bow. And he finds this spot. He grabs a rock and uses it as a pillow, and he goes right to sleep. 
he must have been very tired from his journey or emotionally drained something. Because those are not ideal sleeping situations. Now, he goes to sleep so hard that he has this dream. Verse 12 says, Then he dreamed, and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Now the Hebrew word here really speaks of a staircase. It's less of a ladder, more of a staircase. And it speaks of a gulf that stretches from the earth to heaven. And this gulf is mentioned in other places in Scripture. The stairway spans that gulf, and it allows entities, angels in this case, to go from one place to another, from the earth to heaven, and vice versa. We know that there's a greater significance to this stairway than what lies on the surface, because Jesus explains it in the first chapter of John's gospel. The very end of the chapter, Jesus is talking to Nathanael, and he says, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. That's from John 1, 50 and 51. Nathaniel may very well have been reading this exact passage in Genesis under the fig tree. But regardless, Jesus equates himself with the staircase. So we have a picture that's come full circle. The picture was given in the Old Testament, and Jesus explains it in the New Testament. He's the connection between God and man, between earth and heaven. He's the staircase. He is the bridge across that gaping chasm. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham your father, And the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Also, your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and the south. And in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. So Jacob is having this dream. Heaven opens up. This staircase is shown, spanning from the earth to heaven. Angels are going up and down on it. And then God breaks through from heaven and starts speaking to Jacob. And this is the first time that God reveals himself personally to Jacob. It's the first time that God speaks to Jacob. Now, no doubt, Jacob had believed God's promises for effectively his whole life. But now, God chose to reveal himself to Jacob through a dream. 
And just because he chose to reveal himself in this way this one time, it doesn't mean this was typical. In fact, it's an exception to the rule when God uses a dream to communicate with man. It also doesn't mean that any type of supernatural significance should typically be ascribed to dreams. Again, this is an exception, not the rule. Hebrews 1.1 says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets. You know, God does use diverse ways of getting his message to people. But in the second verse in Hebrews chapter 1, it says he has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. So we have a better testimony today than they ever did in their dreams or visions or by the prophets. We have Jesus to look to. And we have his recorded written word. But here, God does use a dream to come through to Jacob. And Jacob's treated to this wild, wild dream of this staircase. And I'm sure that there was much more detail there than what's actually being communicated to us. We don't need all that detail. We need the picture of the staircase that connects the earth with heaven. That's the main idea. And this dream showed Jacob something of God. And I think that was its purpose. It showed Jacob God's willingness to bridge the gap between he and man. Jacob didn't get the full picture yet with the Messiah, Jesus Christ, dying on the cross, rising for our sins to be forgiven. He didn't get that whole picture. But I'm sure that that simple truth of God being willing to bridge the gap was impressed on his heart. And to hear God's voice simply restating the promise that he had made to Abraham and Isaac, now to the one who would actually become the nation of God's chosen people. That had to be remarkable. And take careful notice of what God didn't say. There's no rebuke for Jacob's deception. There's no rebuke to Rebekah. There's no rebuke of him at all. God doesn't say, you scoundrel. You think you deserve my blessing after all that you just did to your father, to your brother? None of that. There is only blessing and promise. This is grace in operation. Jacob didn't have to earn God's favor. God was going to bless him in order that his name be glorified. That's the whole objective of the nation of Israel, to bring glory to God. That's why he saved you and me, to bring him glory. You know, I see us as trophies in God's trophy case. If he can bring me into heaven, that's saying something, right? 
We don't deserve what we've been given. He chose Israel because they were weak, because they were few, because when they won, when they came out on top, it was him who would be glorified, not the people, not anything in the natural. God was going to bless him in order that his own name be glorified. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Now, I'm sure that Jacob woke up in a heavy sweat after all of this, after seeing what he saw. Now, many teachers really dig into Jacob for what he says here. They say that he equates the physical place with the presence of God. And that would be an incorrect equivalency. You know, God is everywhere all at once. But he does reveal himself sometimes in special ways in a certain place. Just because Jesus was in a physical body, that doesn't mean that God wasn't everywhere else as well. Now, I like to give Jacob a little more credit than that. He had Abraham and he had Isaac to teach him the character and the attributes of their God. And I'm convinced that he knew God was omnipresent. He's not making this false equivalency saying this is where God is. This, he does name it the house of God, Bethel. But I don't think he's naive enough to think that God is only in that place at that time. I think he knew that God was omnipresent everywhere at once. But this is where he experienced God. And that was a special place to him. And we do this too. You know, especially when we're young, maybe we come to Christ at church camp. And we think, man, that was a special time. That was a special place. And you want to go back next year, experience it all again. It's not because you think that God is only at church camp. But this, the place is special to you. You know, even we might think, wow, God was really moving in that church that I went to 20 years ago. Man, I really just want to go back there, get back to what God was doing in my life at that time. You know, that's, it's okay to go back to places. It's okay to have special memories. But God is so much bigger than that. God is not confined to our buildings, to our churches. He is everywhere and he is working in all of our lives, whether we feel him or not. The church today puts too much of an emphasis on feeling. It's all about how you feel, how you experience. And that's just not how it should be. There are things that we know. 
Read 1 John. Over and over and over, John says, we know this because this. There are things we know. We don't have to rely on what we feel. Now, of course, we can experience God's presence anywhere. In fact, Jesus tells us, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there in the midst of them. He's with us this morning. It doesn't matter whether you get the tingling in the back of your neck or not. He's here. And he's working. It's not a matter of happenstance. But those places where we experience his presence in a special way tend to hold special significance in our minds. And I can't fault Jacob for wanting to commemorate his experiences. And so to do that, verse 18 says, Then Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put at his head, set it up as a pillar, and poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city had been Luz previously. So he changes the name of the place. And Luz was probably the city that was closest to where he actually put his head down and saw the dream. And just like the stairway in his dream signifies the link between God and man, the altar also signifies the same. The need for substitutionary atonement, something dying in one's place, was central to God's plan to reconnect humanity to himself. So Jacob commemorates this experience with this little makeshift altar. And I'm sure that this was motivated by a thankful heart and a desire to devote himself fully to the God of his fathers, who now was his God. He's taking on ownership of his parents' faith. And we see it being passed down to him through this experience. So he stands up that stone that he used as a pillow the night before. And since he didn't have any kind of animal to sacrifice, he was traveling light, he pours out an offering of oil onto the pillar to dedicate it to the Lord. But there was something still in his heart that wasn't settled. He wanted to dedicate more than just the pillar. He wanted to dedicate his life to the Lord. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and keep me in this way that I am going, and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on, so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And the stone which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that, and of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. Back in the beginning of verse 20, the word if can better be translated since. That would make it read, since God will be with me and keep me in this way that I am going. And that gives us a better sense of the intention behind this vow. Since Jacob knows 
that God will do this for him, he is also going to put some skin in the game. He is going to commit himself and a tenth of all his possessions, which at the time were very few. He made this commitment when he had next to nothing. But in faith, he trusted that God would provide. Right? And so all the things that he would amass during his time with Laban in Haran, he would then dedicate a tenth of that by faith. He's simply devoting his life to his Lord. Since God is going to keep him, provide for him, he's going to return to God a tenth of what he blesses him with. And I truly think that this comes from a place of thankfulness in Jacob. Jacob gives this vow in appreciation for God's provision, not by some kind of legal compulsion or as a means of securing God's blessing. This blessing was given unconditionally. There was nothing that Jacob needed to do to secure this blessing. And he didn't think that he was bargaining with God. This is another path that we go down when we look at this passage. He's not bargaining with God. He doesn't think that he's giving God a good deal, right? God doesn't need us. God was God before he created us. He's in need of nothing, nothing that we can give him. Jacob is not so naive to think that he's offering God a good deal. He's simply committing himself. And as far as any records go, there was no written law at this time mandating tithing. Now, later, when Moses records the law, there will be, but the only example of tithing that we know Jacob had was from Abraham as he paid those tithes to Melchizedek. Genesis 14, if you need a refresher on that. Jacob seems to commit his tenth to God out of a cheerful heart. Not by compulsion. And he does so in faith. Because he didn't have anything to commit at this point. He trusted God would provide him with something to tithe. And this should be the motive for Christians giving today. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver, literally a hilarious giver. I love that picture. Genesis chapter 29. So Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the peoples of the east. And he looked and saw a well in the field. And behold, there were three flocks of sheep lying by it. For out of that well they watered their flocks. A large stone was in the well's mouth. Now all the flocks would be gathered there, and they would roll the stone from the well's mouth, water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place on the well's mouth. So Jacob comes across this group of shepherds as he's traveling from Beersheba to Haran. 
And these aren't the Sunday school version of shepherds. They're not fair-skinned, long flowing hair with white robes, perfectly crisp and clean. These guys were probably dirty from being around their sheep all the time, taking care of them, defending them. They probably carried their long curved swords with them, ready to put up a fight for their flocks. And we see through this conversation that Jacob has with them that they're not very talkative. They seem to be pretty stoic guys. And Jacob said to them, My brethren, where are you from? And they said, We are from Haran. Then he said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. Real conversationalist there. And they all knew Laban. It seems that Laban has a bit of a reputation as Jacob will find out shortly. So he said to them, Is he well? And they said, He is well. And look, his daughter Rachel is coming with the sheep. So it just so happened that Laban's daughter, Rachel, was about to be there with her flock of sheep, her father's flock. Coincidence? Surely not. An ancient rabbi said, Coincidence is not a kosher word. I like that. Then he said, look, it is still high day. It is not time for the cattle to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go to feed them. So Jacob's confused. He's confused with this culture. They're all gathering to water their sheep at high noon when the sun's hot and the water would actually be evaporated fairly quickly. He doesn't understand why they're doing this. But they said, we cannot water them until all the flocks are gathered together. And they have rolled the stone from the well's mouth. Then we water the sheep. So again, Jacob is not really understanding what's going on here. He's confused at the timing of their watering because it was still afternoon. Usually, at least in Canaan, where he was coming from, all the women would water at evening, because in evening, the sun's lower, it's cooler, it's easier to water. And it seems they waited to roll the stone off the well until everyone got there with their herds. And this could have something to do with fairness. They wanted to make sure that the water was allocated fairly to all the area shepherds. And that's our best guess. We're not really sure what's going on here. Now, while he was still speaking to them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. She must have been pretty hardy. She must have been strong, strong willed, and make for a good wife. And it came to pass when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel, and lifted up his voice, and wept. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's relative, and that he was Rebekah's son. So she ran and told her father. By no accident, Rachel comes over the hill with her father's flock, 
And it was perfect timing because they were all gathered with Jacob at the well. And I guess she was the last one to get there because then they opened it up and Jacob watered her flock. Now, it's awfully interesting that Rebecca, Jacob's mother, before she was his mother, a few chapters ago, watered Eliezer's camels as a sign. Remember that? Eliezer went to Haran, this area of Padan Aram, and he found Rebekah for Isaac. The sign there that Rebekah was the right one was that she was willing and able to water his camels for him. And she did that. Now, I have no doubt that Jacob here had heard about how his parents met. He had heard about that exchange between Eliezer and Rebekah, and he knew that that was the sign that she was the one. Now, it doesn't say so in Scripture. It doesn't say explicitly, but I wonder if that's what was in the back of his mind when he watered her flocks. Jacob rolls the stone away from the well, waters Rachel's flocks, maybe in an attempt to get some brownie points, to woo her, do something nice for her. And it says that he kissed her, which was probably a kiss on the hand. I don't think that he just laid one on her right there. Um, that was a very conservative culture as well. So I, I don't see that <laughs> being what's said there. And he lifted up his voice and wept. Now, guys, I know that ladies like us to be a little more on the sensitive side, talk about our feelings a little bit, or a lot of it, but crying as a first impression is probably not the best policy, okay? Now, I'm sure that Jacob was simply overwhelmed with joy that he had found who he believed to be the one, the mythical one, the wife. And he was probably just happy. And so he breaks out a little bit, and he weeps. And you can't fault him too hard, because his tactics seem to work. She was excited <laughs> to go and tell her father about Jacob. And it says, so she ran and told her father. Everything happens quickly from here on. She runs to tell her father, and then he runs out to meet them, and things move rather quickly. Okay, then it came to pass, when Laban heard the report about Jacob, his sister's son, that he ran to meet him, and embraced him, and kissed him, and brought him to his house. Now, Laban's a bit of a slimy character, right? We know that he liked the gold bracelets that Abraham's servant brought. We don't know for sure what his motives were here. I can't help but think he hears Abraham's family and he's running out for the bracelets, you know, the gold, the adornment. We don't know. That's my suspicion. So he told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are bone of you are my bone and my flesh. You're my family. 
and he stayed with him for a month. Now, notice that Laban said to Jacob, surely you are my bone and my flesh. We see those two things come up in other places. There's no mention of blood, like we would typically refer to a blood relative. Laban uses flesh and bone. Jesus, in his resurrected body, appears to his disciples, and they think he's a ghost or some kind of spirit or something. And in correction to them, Jesus lets them handle him. And he says, a spirit does not have flesh and bones like you see I have. That's from Luke 24, 39. There's something significant about flesh and bone as it relates to our resurrection bodies. I'm not aware of any place that mentions blood in reference to our resurrection bodies. And to be honest, I don't know what you do with that here. But it's an awful peculiar thing to just be thrown in there. So maybe you can make application of that and let me know what you come up with. But I'm not sure what to do with that. There are several other places where flesh and bone are mentioned. And they're mentioned referring to kin, kinship. And to get you started on your own study of it, here are just a few, re- few references for you. Adam says this to Eve in Genesis 2.23. He uses flesh and bone. And then we have a few other examples, Genesis 37.27, Judges 9.2, 2 Samuel 5.1, and 2 Samuel 19.12 and 13. And I'm sure that there are others. That's a sampling. One thing this does tell Jacob, though, when Laban says, you know, you're my flesh and my bone, you're related to me, When he hears that Laban is from the same gene pool as himself, tells him to watch out because he's going to come with the trickery, right? And here, Jacob is going to be outmatched in this trickery contest, in this game of wits by Laban. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me. What should your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were delicate, but Rachel was beautiful of form and appearance. Now we're not sure exactly what it means when it says that Leah's eyes were delicate. And other translations say she had tender eyes. Many believe that it's talking about the color of the eyes. It could also mean that her eyesight was literally subpar. She was hard of seeing. But in this part of the world, they favored dark hair and dark eyes. They thought that that was beautiful. So these were the characteristics that Rachel showed, the dark hair, dark eyes. Jacob saw Rachel as very beautiful. But Leah probably had lighter colored eyes. And I think this is kind of more what it's saying. Maybe a blue or a green color, which was called delicate or weak or tender, tender tender-eyed. 
It's also possible that her eyesight was subpar, but I think probably the color. But regardless, Jacob's eyes were set on Rachel. From the very beginning, Rachel was the one for Jacob. Now Jacob loved Rachel. So he said, I will serve you seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. And Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to another man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed only a few days to him because of the love he had for her. So right now, Laban is agreeing to this deal. He agrees that Jacob will serve him for seven years, and he will in exchange give his daughter Rachel to Jacob. Seems pretty cut and dry. And Jacob wasn't beating around the bush. He was very clear about the terms of this agreement. He was clear about who he wanted. But this will be twisted in Laban's favor. Rachel must have been beautiful for Jacob to serve seven years for her. And those seven years flew by because he loved her so much. Imagine that. Seven years of indentured servitude went by in a blink because you just loved this lady so much. That's crazy. And in this day, the bride price, the dowry that the potential suitor would pay to the wife's family was about 30 to 40 shekels of silver. A shepherd's wage was about 10 shekels of silver a year. So Jacob overpaid for Rachel, who he thought was Rachel, right? He serves seven years, account for about 70 shekels of silver. And that was about double the price that you would typically pay as a dowry. He must have loved her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me one wife for my days are fulfilled, that I may go into her. And Laban gathered together all the men of this place, and they made a feast. And that was typical. You know, any time that a contract was made, a covenant, which a marriage was a covenant, it very much would fall into this category, there would always be a feast to commemorate it. So this was very typical. They're feasting. Now it came to pass in the evening that he took Leah his daughter and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. And Laban gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah as a maid. This is just trouble, right? Laban is now giving Jacob a dose of his own medicine. He's doing the old flippity-flop. And Jacob is not going to be happy about this. Jacob and Laban made this deal. But Laban sent Leah into the tent with Jacob instead of Rachel. And Jacob had no idea because, for one, Leah would have been covered during the wedding festivities. She would have worn a veil. And two, it would have been dark in the tent. When they actually consummated the marriage, he probably wouldn't have known what was going on. So verse 25 says, So it came to pass in the morning that, behold, 
it was Leah. And he said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served you? Why then have you deceived me? I really can't imagine the heartbreak that Jacob is facing. He's labored faithfully and heartily for seven years. And Laban switches it up on him like this. And to be honest, it's a bit of poetic justice because that's exactly what he did to his father. One from his own gene pool pulls the wool over his eyes. And now the heel catcher, his heel has been caught. He's been out tricked. Verse 26, and Laban said, it must not be done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Fulfill her week, and we will give you this one also for the service which you will serve with me still another seven years. Man, that's a tough pill to swallow. You just finished your seven years of service. You think you're getting your wife just to turn around and do another seven years. Laban is really just taking advantage of poor Jacob here. But it actually was the custom at this time that the older daughter be married before the younger daughter. He wasn't lying about that. Now, I don't know why he agreed to the terms that Jacob had, but this is how it played out. And there were a couple of reasons for this tradition of the older being married before the younger. One was so that the family would be spared the potential economic drain of having an old spinster in the house, basically. So that she would go ahead and get married, move out, that economic burden would be put on the husband instead of the family back home. So that was one of the reasons. They also saw this as a means of assuring that the younger sister didn't bring shame on the older sister. And that could happen because if the younger sister was much more beautiful than the older, she might have gotten married first and brought shame to her older sister. They wanted to avoid that. And this instance with Rachel and Leah kind of seems to fit the bill on that one. And it doesn't say that Leah was ugly and just says that she was delicate-eyed. And I'm sure she was actually a beautiful woman because Jacob doesn't realize that the switch was made until the morning, right? So I don't know. Those are two reasons that they use this tradition, but Laban has an awfully strange timing uh, for when he tells Jacob about this. So a little deceitful there. He says, fulfill her week, that is Rachel's week of years in service to him. Fulfill her week, and we will give you this one also for the service which you will serve me still another seven years. And then you'll get Rachel too. Then Jacob did so and fulfilled her week. So he gave him his daughter Rachel as wife also. Now I do wonder if the second seven-year stint went as quick as the first. That's got to be tough. But Jacob did see his end of the deal through. He fulfilled his end of it. And Laban 
gave his maid Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as a maid. Then Jacob also went in to Rachel, and he also loved Rachel more than Leah. And he served with Laban still another seven years. Even though Jacob was treated poorly by Laban, I think Leah might have even gotten a worse deal than Jacob did. because Now she's stuck with a guy who loves another woman more than her. That's torture. It is absolutely torturous. Now, it is unclear whether she actually had to play along with Laban's trickery, but I tend to think that she did. And I think that she probably developed feelings for Jacob during those first seven years that he was with the family. So she probably wanted Jacob and probably went along with her father's trickery to make that happen. And so she probably was complicit, but on the other side of the whole thing, she was unloved by Jacob. He didn't choose her. She just happened to to be his. And when the Lord saw that Leah was indeed unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Now, to be clear, God didn't love one of these women more than the other. Jacob did, but God loved both of these women the same. And he did open Leah's womb so that she would conceive for Jacob. They were obviously still being intimate during this time, but Leah's motive was probably just gaining favor with Jacob. Because if she could conceive and bear him a son, she would be the one to have. She'd be the one that he would turn his affection towards. Sons were such a prized possession. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And sure enough, verse 32, Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, the Lord has surely looked on my affliction. Now, therefore, my husband will love me. That's so sad. So sad. And all of this resulted from deceitfulness from dishonesty. The Lord has surely looked on my affliction. Now, therefore, my husband will love me. Reuben is the first son of Jacob that's listed here. And it's going to list more, but these are the children from whom the tribes of Israel would grow. These are, in effect, the patriarchs of those tribes, the sons of Jacob. And Jacob's name is even going to be changed to Israel. He goes from heel catcher or supplanter to Israel, governed by God. An incredible transformation in his life. And no doubt that signified a change in his heart. We're not just looking at names here. They stood for something. Reuben, 33, Then she conceived again and bore a son, And said, because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has therefore given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. 
She conceived again and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. She thinks three is the lucky number. Such a sad picture. Therefore, his name was called Levi. Now, Levi, that name should stick out to us. From his line would come the Levitical priesthood, the priesthood of the Old Testament, the people who officiate at God's altars, officiate at the tabernacle. From Leah, this very sacred line would come. But wait, there's more. Verse 35, And she conceived again and bore a son and said, Now I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she stopped bearing. Judah was the last one. Judah is the line from which Christ comes. Jesus comes from the line of Leah, not from Rachel. Interesting. Surely God has looked on my affliction. God did indeed see her affliction. And she was blessed. I don't know if she even knew it or not. But she was blessed to have the line of Christ. That's a remarkable blessing. Then she stopped bearing. We're going to wrap up at the end of chapter 29 this morning. We'll continue looking at Jacob's sons when we come back next week. And we'll try to get through chapter 30 at least, possibly into 31. We'll wait and see what that looks like for us. If you would, please bow your heads as we close in prayer.